Minister John Glenn. Number one, Mr Speaker. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker, I'm sure the whole House will wish to join me in paying tribute to Sapper Richard Reginald Walker of 28 Engineer Regiment, attached to 21 Engineer Regiment. It is clear to see from the tributes paid that he was an outstanding soldier and hugely respected, and our deepest sympathies are with his family and his friends at this difficult time. Mr. Speaker, I'd also like to mention the helicopter crash in central London this morning. The whole House will wish to join me in sending our thanks to the emergency services for their rapid and professional response to this situation. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others, and in addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. John Glenn. Thank you, Mr Speaker. For too long, many women, and especially hard-working stay-at-home mums, have been penalised by the country's pension system for having interruptions to their national insurance contributions. After 13 years, when the previous government did nothing to address this, does the Prime Minister think that the announcement this week of a single-tier pension will finally deal with this grave injustice? I think my honourable friend makes an important point. I think the single-tier pension is an excellent reform. I very much hope it will have all party support because it holds out the prospect of, in 2017 of having a basic state pension over £140 rather than £107, taking millions of people out of the means test, giving them dignity in retirement, and particularly, as he says, helping low-paid people, self-employed people, and above all women who haven't been able to have necessarily a full state pension in the past. It's an excellent reform and I hope it will have the support of everyone across the House. Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker, can I join the Prime Minister in paying tribute to Sapper Richard Reginald Walker of 28 Engineer Regiment attached to 21 Engineer Regiment. He showed the utmost courage and bravery and all of our thoughts are with his family and friends. I also join the Prime Minister in passing on condolences to the families of those who lost their lives in the helicopter crash in London this morning and paying tribute to the emergency services. Mr Speaker, when the Prime Minister first became leader of the Conservative Party, he said that their biggest problem was that they spent far too much of their time banging on about Europe. Is he glad those days are over? the leader of the Labour Party should accept the fact that there is a massive change taking place in Europe. A change that is being driven by the changes in the Eurozone. And frankly, this country faces a choice, and political parties in this country face a choice. Do we look at these changes and see what we can do to maximise Britain's national interest? And do we consult the public about that? Or do we sit back, do nothing, and tell the public to go hang? I know where I stand, I know where this party stands, and that's in the national interest. We can find out where he does stand today, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Speaker. I, I should, I should, I suppose, I should, I suppose, congratulate him on one thing: on having decided on the date of his speech. Well done. Well done. Uh, another example of the Rolls-Royce operation of Number 10 Downing Street. Now, 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 Mr. Speaker, uh, in advance of his speech, what's his answer to this question, which investors need to know? Will Britain be in the European Union in five years' time? Well, on, 
important on important decisions. Can I first of all congratulate him on an important decision that he's made this week, and that is to keep the shadow chancellor in place till 2015. party support. My view is that Britain is better off in the European Union, but I think it is right for us to use it is right for us to see the changes taking place in Europe and to make sure that we are arguing for the changes that Britain needs. So that therefore we have a better relationship between Britain and Europe, we have a better organised European Union and we have the full-hearted consent of the British people. Those are the choices that we are making. What are his choices? Maybe we're making a bit of progress, Mr Speaker. Now, in October 2011, and I'm sure the Prime Minister will remember this, he and I walked shoulder to shoulder through the lobby against the 81 members of his party who voted for an in-out referendum. You might call it two parties working together in the national interest, (laughs) Mr Speaker. Now, now the Foreign Secretary said at the time, I I think he's on his way to Australia to get as far away from the Prime Minister's speech as possible, Uh, he said this. He said the reason for our vote was that an in-out referendum would create additional economic uncertainty in this country at a difficult economic time. Was the Foreign Secretary right? Yes, he was entirely right. And and it's interesting that it is interesting that the Leader of the Opposition only wants to talk about process because he dare not debate the substance. think it would be right for Britain to have an in-out referendum today because I think we'd be giving the British people a false choice. Millions of people in this country, myself included, want Britain to stay in the European Union, but they believe there are chances to negotiate a better relationship. Now, throughout Europe, countries are looking at forthcoming treaty change and thinking, what can I do to maximise my national interest? That is what the Germans will do. That is what the Spanish will do. That is what the British should do. Now let's get onto the substance and give up the feeble jokes. First of all, Mr. Speaker, I thought the jokes were pretty good, but I am talking about uh, but I am but I am talking about the substance. His position appears to be this. An in-out referendum now would be destabilising, but promising one in five years' time is just fine for the country. Now, let's see if that is his position, because what does that mean? That is five years of businesses seeing a closed-for-business sign hanging around Britain. What, what did Lord Heseltine say? He said this. To commit, I know they want to jeer Lord Heseltine, one of the few mainstream voices in the Conservative Party. He said this. To commit to a referendum about a negotiation that hasn't begun, on a timescale you cannot predict, on an outcome that's unknown, seems to me like an unnecessary gamble. Isn't Lord Heseltine right? It is absolutely no secret that when it comes to Europe, there are disagreements between myself and Michael Heseltine. Michael, who I have a huge amount of time for, he was one of the leading voices for Britain joining the single currency, and I'm delighted we haven't joined, and we shouldn't join, and under my Prime Ministership, we will never join the single currency. 
that is also the view of millions of businesses up and down this country. What business wants in Europe is what I want in Europe, for us to be part of Europe, but a more flexible Europe, a more competitive Europe, a Europe that can take on the challenge of the global race and the rise of nations in the South and the East. And I put it to him again. When there is change taking place in Europe, when the single currency is driving change, isn't it in Britain's national interest to argue for changes that will make the European Union more competitive and more flexible, that will strengthen and sort out Britain's relationship between Britain and the European Union, and then to ask the British people for their consent? That is our approach. Apart from coming up with what he considers very amusing jokes, what is his approach? The biggest, change, the biggest change we need in Europe is to move from austerity to growth and jobs. And he has, and he has absolutely nothing to say about that. And here, and here is the reality. The reason that he's changing his mind is nothing to do with the national interest. It's because he's lost control of his party. That is, and, and, the problem, and the problem is this. He thinks his problems on Europe will end on Friday. They are just beginning. They just beginning. Can he confirm can he confirm that he is now giving the green light to Conservative Cabinet Ministers to campaign on different positions on whether they're for or against being in the European Union? Well, well, first of all, he asks he he, he makes the point he he tries to make the point that Europe should somehow be moving off the policy of deficit reduction. He is completely isolated in Europe. There is not one single government not even socialists in Europe who believe that you should be pushing up borrowing and borrowing more. That is the simple truth. What is in Britain's interest is to seek a fresh settlement in Europe that is more flexible, more competitive. That is in our interest. That is what we will seek. But I have to ask him, I have to ask him this. Doesn't he understand? Doesn't he understand that what has happened over the last decade, where a Labour government signed treaty after treaty, gave away power after power, saw more centralisation after more centralisation, and never consulted the British people, is what has made this problem such a big problem in the first place? in the country will have heard the Prime Minister did not answer the question about whether he had given the green light to his cabinet, to his conservative colleagues in cabinet, for some of them to campaign for being in the European Union and some of them getting out of the European Union. That is the reality of the position of the weakness of this Prime Minister, Mr Speaker. And at a time when there are one million young people out of work and we have businesses going to the wall, what is he doing? He spent six months preparing a speech to create five years of uncertainty for Britain. When it comes to Europe, it's the same old Tories. A divided party and a weak Prime Minister. Absolutely nothing to say about the important issue of Britain's relationship with Europe. The response from the Prime Minister must be heard, and it will be. The Prime Minister. There will be a very simple choice at the next election. If you want to stay out of the single currency, you vote Conservative. If you want to join the single currency, you vote Labour. If you want to take power back from Britain, you vote Conservative. If you want to give power to Brussels, you vote Labour. That is the truth. What we see from his position, he wants absolutely no change in the relationship between Britain and Europe, and he doesn't believe the British people should be given a choice. Mark Horsey! The the Prime Minister has very rightly 
rightly focused the government on growth and development of new housing plays a key part in providing that growth as well as providing much needed new homes. In my constituency we have two developments with a combined size of 8,000 new homes coming forward. Will the Prime Minister join me in praising Rugby Borough Council's attitude towards new development and perhaps he might come to Rugby to see how we're going about doing it. Well I've been delighted to visit my honourable friend in Rugby. He's absolutely right to say that we do need to build more houses in our country. That is because right now unless you have help from your parents the average age of the first time buyer is now in their 30s we need to build more homes to make sure we can allow people to achieve the dream that so many people have done of getting on the housing ladder Mr David Lammy Thank you Mr Speaker In 2010 the Prime Minister and his party said it was I quote, lying and scaremongering to suggest that they would reduce family tax credits for families earning less than 31,000 We found out last week that the threshold will in fact be 26,000. Will he now apologise to families that he's failed to protect and he's made poorer in government? This government has had to make difficult decisions on public spending and on welfare, but throughout that we've actually protected those on the lowest incomes and made sure, particularly with the child tax credit, that we've actually increased it. That is what we've done with child tax credits and it's a record that we should support. Laura Sam. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Residents of Thanet both enjoy burgers but also love horses. This morning they will be shocked, shocked, shocked to hear that they might have been eating horse meat. I wonder if the Prime Minister can reassure us that he and the government is doing a lot to reassure the diners of Thanet. Is a very important issue, raises, raises a very important issue, and it's an extremely serious issue. People in our country would have been very concerned to read this morning that when they thought they were buying beef burgers, they were buying something that had horse meat uh, in it. That is extremely disturbing news. I've asked the Food Standards Agency to conduct an urgent investigation into this. They have made clear that there's no risk to public safety because there's no food safety risk, but this is a completely unacceptable state of affairs. They will be meeting retailers and processors this afternoon. They'll be working with them to investigate the supply chain, but it is worth making the point that ultimately retailers have to be responsible for what they sell and where it has come from. Kate Hoey. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Um, Could I thank the Prime Minister and the Leader of the Opposition for their condolences, and could I add my condolences and sympathy to those people who have died, the families of those who have died in my constituency this morning in the helicopter crash. Uh, Would he share with me the absolute amazing work that was done by particularly the fire services this morning, the firefighters who came from Clapham Station were there in a very short time. Would he also recognise that at some stage, not for today, but at some stage we do need to look at whether now with the changing skyline of London we need to look much more closely at where and how and why helicopters fly throughout our central city. I think the Honourable Lady is absolutely right once again to praise the emergency services. I think everyone could see from those terrifying pictures on our television screens this morning just how quickly the emergency services responded and how brave and professional they were in the way in which they responded. I think the point she makes 
about the rules for helicopter flights and indeed other flights over our capital city. I'm sure they will be looked at as part of the investigations that will take place. She's right that that's not an issue for today, but inevitably it's something that has to be, has to be carefully looked at. Mary McLeod. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Last week I organised an entrepreneurship seminar in Chiswick for women wanting to set up their own businesses, and one of the questions they asked was about the cost of childcare. Given that this government has extended 15 hours of care to two-year-olds for the most disadvantaged, a quarter of a million two-year-olds, and extended it to three- and four-year-olds, it does not show that this government is supporting families and women who want to work. I think my honourable friend makes a very important point. The fact is we have seen over the last couple of years one of the fastest rates of new business creation in our history, but we do need to encourage particularly female entrepreneurship. If we had the same rate as other countries, we could help wipe out unemployment altogether. We do help families, as as my honourable friend said, in terms of two-, three-, and four-year-olds with childcare. We also help through the tax credit system, but as the House will know, we are looking at how we can help even further for hard-working people that want to go out to work, that need help for, for childcare, to make sure they can do the right thing for their children and their families. Sarah Champion. Thank you, Mr Speaker. When will the Prime Minister visit a food bank? He's most welcome to come to Rotherham. Well, first of all, let me just say again how much uh, we should uh, recognise and welcome the work that food banks do. And it was the last government, I think, that quite rightly actually recognised that through giving food banks uh, an award. As honourable members have asked this question and shout out a lot about food banks, let me remind them of one simple fact. The use of food banks went up tenfold under the last Labour government. So before they try to use this as some political weapon, they should recognise this started under their own government. Geoffrey Clifton Brown. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The National Star College in my constituency provides world-renowned care for some of our disabled youngsters with the most profound and complex learning difficulties to enable them to lead an independent life. Sadly, its and a few similar colleges' future is being placed in jeopardy by a decision not to ring-fence the funding. As I'm sure my right honourable friend will wish to solve this problem, may I invite him to come to the college to see this wonderful care for himself. As my constituency neighbour, I'm very happy to discuss this issue with him. He rightly praises the fantastic work carried out by the National Star College. It does do an excellent job in improving the life chances of young people. I know the college has concerns over the new funding system, uh, and I know that he has contacted the minister responsible. We're changing the way that funding is allocated, but this does not necessarily mean that the funding will be cut. I'm very happy to discuss this with him, but the new funding system does allow local authorities to have more say in how the funding is distributed but I'm sure they'll want to recognise excellent work, including from this National College. Jeremy Corbyn. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Is the Prime Minister aware of the trauma facing thousands of families, particularly in London, who live in private rented accommodation, where the housing benefit payments do not meet the rapidly increasing rents and they're then forced out of their homes, forced out of their boroughs, and the community suffers as a result and the children's education suffers also. Does he not think it's time to regulate private sector rents and bring in a fair rents policy in this country so that families are not forced out of the communities where they and their families have lived for a very long time? What I would say to the Honourable Gentleman is that he does have to recognise that we inherit 
inherited a situation in terms of housing benefit in London that was completely out of control. Some families were getting as much as £104,000 for one family for one year. Even today, we are still spending something like £6 billion on housing benefit in London. And I think we have to recognise that higher levels of housing benefit and higher rents were chasing each other up in a spiral. I don't support the idea of mass rent controls because I think what we'd see is a massive decline in the private rented sector, which is what happened last time we had such rent controls. So what we need is proper regulation of housing uh, benefit and making sure we have a competitive system for private sector renting and also making sure we build more flats and houses. Mr Alan Reid. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The deficit has to be brought down, but if uh, tax credits and benefits are capped now for the next three years at 1%, people in low incomes will be left vulnerable to increases in food and energy prices. If prices go up by more than expected, what contingency plans does the government have for benefits and tax credits? The most important thing is to make sure people are getting a good deal in terms of energy prices. That is why we're going to be legislating to make companies put people on the lowest available tariffs. That is something that on this side of the House we're doing, which will help all families. Mr Keith Baz. Thank you, Mr Speaker. As a diabetic, can I welcome the fact that last year the Prime Minister lit up number 10 for the first time on World Diabetes Day. One third of all the primary school leavers have got either obese, are either obese or they are overweight, yet they consume cans of Coke and Pepsi that contain up to eight teaspoons of sugar. What steps is the Prime Minister proposing to take to engage manufacturers in a war against sugar? If we don't act now, the next generation will be overwhelmed by a diabetes epidemic. I think the right honourable gentleman is absolutely right to raise this issue. It is one of the biggest health challenges that we face in our country, a public health challenge that we face. He's right to highlight the problem of excessive uh, eating of sugar. That is why we challenge business through our responsibility deal to try and reduce levels of sugar, and that has had some effect. What we have in place now is a diabetes action plan, which is about how we improve early diagnosis, how we better integrate care, how we provide better support. But frankly, this is one of those health challenges that is not just a challenge for the health service, it is a challenge for local authorities, for schools and for parents as well. And as someone trying to bring up uh, three children without excessive amounts of Coca-Cola, I know exactly how big this challenge is. Mr Gareth Johnson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Speaker, 20 years ago this week, Claire Tiltman, a 16-year-old Dartford Grammar girls' school pupil, was stabbed to death in my constituency. Nobody has ever been convicted of this crime. Both of her parents subsequently died, never knowing who had actually taken their only child from them. Mr Speaker, could the Prime Minister assure the House that this government will continue to provide full assistance to Kent Police to help bring justice for one of Britain's most brutal and unsolved murders? My right honourable friend is absolutely right. To my honourable friend, it's absolutely right to raise this case. It is a particularly tragic case because, as he says, the parents of this um, girl have both died. What I would say is, of course, we will do everything we can. But above all, I think it's for other people, anyone who knows anything about this case, to talk to the Kent Police because, in the end, uh, it is their responsibility to try and solve this case. In terms of taking action to deal with appalling knife crimes like this one, as he knows, the government's taken a set of important actions. Mr. Robert Flello. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. 
39 people suspected of serious child sex offences who fled the country have been brought back quickly to Britain under the European arrest warrant to face justice. Sadly, many of his backbenchers want to scrap the European arrest warrant, making it easier for paedophiles to escape justice. Will he today categorically rule that out? As the Honourable Gentleman knows, we have the opportunity uh, to work out which of the home affairs parts of the European Union we want to opt out of and which ones we want to opt back into. That is being rightly discussed in the government, being discussed in this House, and I'm sure they'll listen very carefully to his arguments. Annette Brooke. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Great progress is being made in improving the rights of park home owners, many of whom are vulnerable and on low incomes. Currently, they are not eligible for the Green Deal. Will he ask his civil servants to investigate this matter to make sure that assistance with energy efficiency is available to everybody who really needs it? Well, I look very carefully at what uh, my honourable friend says. I think this government has taken some step forward in terms of uh, the rights of park home owners. I have some of these in my own constituency, and I know how important it is that we get the balance of, of law right. Specifically, her point on the Green Deal, I will look at that because the Green Deal is a very important uh, measure to try and help people with their energy efficiency and keep their bills down. And we want that, obviously, to be available to as many people as possible. Graham M. Morris. Uh, thank you, Mr Speaker. Yesterday, Sir Bruce Keogh, the medical director of the NHS, told the Public Accounts Committee that GPs were imposing unjustified restrictions on cataract operations. It seems the Prime Minister and his reorganisation is taking the NHS back to the 1980s, when the the NHS was the sick man of Europe. Will he take this opportunity to apologise to elderly people who are waiting unnecessarily for their cataract operations? First of all, can I just make the point that compared with 2010-11, last year there were 400,000 extra operations in our NHS. If you look across, if you look across our NHS, there are 5,000 more doctors and 5,000 fewer administrators. We've got the level of fixed set of mixed sex wards right down. The level of hospital-acquired infections. The point I'm making, and I know the party opposite don't want to hear, the NHS is improving under this government because we're putting the money in and they take the money out. Many of us were inspired by the Prime Minister's speech on political reform delivered in Milton Keynes when we were in opposition. He promised to make politicians more outwardly and properly accountable to the people. To make that happen, uh, we were promised a system of open primary selection, which has already had such a refreshing effect in the constituencies of Totnes and Gosport. When does the Prime Minister expect a system of full-blown open primaries to be in place more widely, as promised in the coalition agreement? Well, I do support using open primaries. As he said, on this side of the House, we had, sorry, in this party, we had a number of open primaries. I hope that all parties can look at this issue and debate and see how we can encourage maximum participation, including in the selection of candidates. Hugh Bailey. Let's uh, talk about Europe and the national interest. Uh, Millions of British women would be hit by the proposal in today's Conservative Fresh Start report to opt out of the EU law on equal pay. Will the Prime Minister rule out this opt-out today? 
what, what this government has done, as we explained at the beginning of Prime Minister's questions, is massively help women through the single tier pension. I'll look very carefully at the proposal that he, that he mentions and I'll write to him. Mr Gary Streeter. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I know my, I know my right honourable friend is aware of the extreme flooding suffered in the West Country in November and December of last year. Uh, impacting many homes and businesses, but also sweeping away the rail link between the West Country and London, leaving us cut off for several days. Would he please ensure that our government will take every step necessary to improve the resilience of this vital rail link so that we never get cut off again? No, I'm, I think my honourable friend is absolutely right to raise this issue. I'm well aware of how bad the flooding was. I went to see myself uh, Buck Farsley and how badly uh, that town had been flooded. I know that my right honourable friend, the Secretary of State for Transport, has been discussing the recent flooding with Network Rail's Chair and Chief Executive. He's going to be visiting the area soon uh, to look at this. We're working with Network Rail to improve the resilience of the overall network and we will do everything we can to make sure that these important services are maintained even when they're challenged by floods like like the ones we saw last year. Margaret Ritchie. Mr Speaker, does the Prime Minister accept that a statement on Europe designed to be populist runs the risk of polarising this House, undermining key UK relations with America, confusing and alienating our friends and partners in Europe and disasterly starting a process that sleepwalks the UK out of Europe? I think the most dangerous thing for this country would be to bury our head in the sand and pretend there isn't a debate about Britain's future in Europe. The most dangerous thing for this country would be to see the changes that are taking place in Europe because of the single currency and stand back and say we're going to do nothing about it. What Britain should be doing is getting in there, fighting for the changes that we want, so then we can ask for the consent of the British people to settle this issue once and for all. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can the Prime Minister tell the House what the Government is doing to keep pensioners warm in this cold weather? And will he join me, will he join me in congratulating the Suffolk Foundation for the, success, for the great success of their surviving winter campaign? What this government has done is, first of all, give the biggest increase in the basic state pension of £5.30 a week last year. We have kept the winter fuel payments, we've kept the cold weather payments at the higher level, and we're replacing the warm front scheme with the energy company obligation, the ECO. And while the warm front scheme helps something like 80,000 houses a year, the ECO could help up to 230,000 houses a year. So that is what we're doing, that is how we're helping old people, and it's a record we should be proud of. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister should know that the ONS have recently released figures which show that there were 24,000 24,000 extra cold weather deaths over the winter of 2011 and 2012. The majority of those who perished were over the age of 75. So, Mr Speaker, can I ask the Prime Minister if he thinks his government should do more to help the elderly and the vulnerable and less to help millionaires with tax cuts? As I just said, we are doing more to help the elderly and the vulnerable. A record increase in the basic state pension, bigger than what the party opposite uh, would have done with their rules, keeping the cold weather payments at the higher level that the last party only the government only introduced before the election, keeping our promise on winter fuel payments, taking all of those steps and making sure, again, something never done by the party opposite, that energy companies will have to put people on the lowest tariffs. 
That is a record we can be proud of. Steve Baker. Speaker, Tom Pure, a business in my constituency, is enduring a hideous regulatory farce thanks to the Health and Safety Executive and the European Union. Will my right honourable friend remind the CBI that the British economy is very reliant on small and medium businesses, businesses far less able to cope with bad regulation, particularly when it's badly administered in the UK? My honourable friend is absolutely right. Businesses, large and small, are complaining about the burden of regulation, not just the burden of regulation from Europe, but the burden of regulation more generally, and that is why we should be fighting in Europe for a more flexible, a more competitive Europe, and a Europe where we see regulations come off rather than always go on. But the view of the party opposite is just sit back, do nothing, accept the status quo, and never listen to the British people or British business either.